Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. I'm Stephanie Fay, and I'll be sharing insights into how human brain architecture and biology are influenced by our unconscious fears and social behaviors. I'll also give you science-based strategies on how to skyrocket the brain's learning potential by focusing on the power of mindset, relationship, and psychological safety. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode four, where we're going to talk about the idea of purpose. And we're going to look at three facets of this concept of purpose. The first is going to be that we tend to think people are doing things more on purpose than they actually are. And we're going to look at why this is not really the case and why this is a problem. The second is that we're going to look also at how we are able to do things more on purpose than we currently really understand or have learned about. And this is a really big game changer in terms of our level of efficacy or agency. And the last level we'll look at is this sense of purpose or what Ivan Pavlov called the reflex of purpose. And we're going to look at a few aspects of that and how it's really important for us to recognize that we have a value and that our existence matters to somebody else. This is really important, not just for our emotional and social well-being, but it also, there's evidence now that we see that it does increase perseverance when it comes to academic performance and job performance and perseverance through challenges. So the first aspect we're going to talk about is this idea that many of us assign a very high level of intention to other people's behaviors. So we are thinking they're doing things a lot more on purpose than they actually are. And the problem with this is that, first of all, it's inaccurate. Most of what we are doing is driven by very unconscious drives, unconscious impulses that are hardwired into us that drive our behavior and also unconscious fears that have been programmed into us very much from our earliest experiences in life where we have even different levels of brain waves that are much more dominant. So for example, in our earliest years, we are more commonly in a theta brainwave state, which allows us to be more receptive to what's coming in. And also, if you think about, you know, we've been talking about myelination, we are in a moment in our earliest years where our neurons and neural circuitry is trying to figure out how to get wired and how how to establish itself. So the networks haven't really specialized themselves yet. And that makes us also very susceptible to the beliefs and behavior patterns and emotional reactions and physiological states of the people around us. And all of that can get absorbed into us uh, very easily during those earliest years. And because we're going through, especially from the very earliest years of our life, we're going through a lot of pruning, which means that the neural circuits, the the neurons that are not being activated a lot, um, the connections are being pruned away. And we are then also at the same time going through those different levels of myelination where some networks are getting established. And we have to remember that this is, all of it is based on the information that's coming in to our senses. So this is not just about things we see, such as 
really obvious movements or syntax or language of what people are saying, although it does have something to do with that. But it has also to do with all of those very microscopic cues that are coming from other people's biofeedback and their reactions to other things, you know, even a mother's reaction to a spider or a bumblebee, all of that will get absorbed by, for example, the infant that is near her. It's not necessarily the infant's experience with the spider or the bee that lays down their narrative and their unconscious reactions and behaviors towards, in this example, the spider or the bee. A lot of times it's actually the people around um, the infant, their reactions to things that get imprinted into us when we are very little. So, and remember again, that this is not, we live in a very metaphorical world too. So it's not just someone's reaction to a spider or a bumblebee. It can also be someone's reaction to failure, that there are physiological changes that happen in a person based on their own experiences, the narratives they got imprinted with when they were young towards something like failure. And so all of this gets imprinted into us from a very, very early age. And it gets to the point where those that neural circuitry that's getting activated over and over again becomes pretty much automated and then basically becomes subconscious or even unconscious. It doesn't really reach, reach our awareness anymore when we are working out of those unconscious or hardwired almost at this point uh, or myelinated networks. So uh, that's the first thing to think about is that we, all of us are having a lot of our behaviors are coming from very unconscious triggers and drives. And that also goes back to the concept of neuroception that I mentioned in an earlier episode, which is that our our senses are picking up on things constantly in our environment. And those senses are then triggering different reactions in our body, which are based on different threshold levels that are based on our experiences. And those cause physiological reactions in our body, which then turn into some sort of behavior. And what we think of emotions actually is just the interpretation of those changes that have just happened. So our more recent understanding and a a book in particular that's really interesting to look at is Antonio DiMaggio's latest book, where he talks about how important our body and our body sensations are in terms of our existence and our experience, that we've been very much in our mind and thinking about what our mind is doing all the time and intellectualizing things. But our body and our senses have a very, very big role in our behaviors. And so what we think someone is doing on purpose there's a, a higher chance that they are actually just reacting very reflexively from unconscious triggers that have happened that were, you know, based on their previous experiences, especially as children, and they're just responding to us in that way. And what I would argue is that if someone is responding to us in a angry, hostile, defensive, scared, anxious, or sad even mode, there's a very, very low chance that they're doing this on purpose because those would be indicators that they're actually in the more sympathetic or even the lower parasympathetic mode of 
the fight or flight mobilization defense system or the immobilization system. And what that would tell you is that if those systems are being recruited, if we are in some sort of defensive or, you know, paralysis resigned kind of mode, it means that our more evolved nervous system architecture, that myelinated vagus nerve is probably not particularly strong at that moment. The nervous system, the the sympathetic nervous system, the mobilization system is being more highly recruited, is more dominant in that moment, which would tell us also that there's a very good chance that the prefrontal cortex and certain areas of the brain that would allow us to do something more in a controlled way, in an intentional way, aren't even online at that moment. So what I'm getting at by saying all that is that when someone is acting angrily, defensively, in a hostile way, very reactively, what that tells us is that there's almost no chance they're doing it on purpose because the parts of the brain that are required to do things on purpose would not be online. And our indication of that is that those kinds of behaviors are not the behaviors that come on that surface when we are in our safe, highly evolved mode of using those areas of the brain. So I think it's important for us to to have realizations about that because it changes how we react to other people. So for example, if you see a baby or a child and you see a child throwing a tantrum, the way you interpret their behavior will have a really, really big influence on how you react to their behavior. If you take their behavior to be very intentional and willful, that they are just having a bad attitude, that they're just being a jerk in that moment, that they're purposely trying to piss you off. If you have that as your um, narrative, your interpretation of it, you're going to respond to them in one way. However, if you look at it as, oh, if they seem out of control of their behavior, if they're angry, if they're throwing a fit, if they are crying, if they're yelling, whatever it is they're doing, that means that they are not regulated in that moment, which means that there is, it is impossible that they are doing anything on purpose at that moment. It means they are not in control of their behaviors. And when you have that understanding of that behavior, you're going to respond in a very different way. And what I think our best mode in that is to figure out how do we bring them back into a regulated state? That's the only way we can be in control of our behaviors. We must be regulated. We cannot be in our mobilized defensive mode. We need to have that level of control, that myelinated vagus nerve coming online to control our heart rate variability, our inner physiology. And that is what allows the areas of the brain that give us a sense of control over our behavior to come back online. So, I think that we do this not just within our personal relationships, but that is a very, very dominant part of our life that we do assign a lot of intention, that if someone is doing something in a certain way, they're doing it on purpose. And by understanding that most of us are not doing a lot of things on purpose, we're doing a lot of things on autopilot, we're doing things because we've always done them that way. And what this takes in order for it to to change is for us to have a new understanding of how little control most of us are having over our behavior. And so that actually brings us into the second section, which is that 
when we can understand that we there is a possibility for us to have more control over our behavior, for us to do more things on purpose. And that concept is a very empowering one. And it's not one that many of us have learned about, partly because we have not had a deep understanding of the mind and human behavior until now. And going back to an earlier episode, part of that is coming from the fact that a lot of what we were learning about was based on different, you know, pigeon and rat studies that were coming from the lab and that stimulus response formula that we were using in behaviorism. So we had a very primitive understanding of human behavior until now, and it's still evolving. We still really don't understand it, but we're starting to see new developments in in all of this. And so the next piece that's really important in terms of this idea of doing things on purpose is for us to become more open to the idea that there are practices and there are rituals and there are methods that we can use in order to have more control over our behaviors, over our impulses. And this is where the idea of growth mindset is really important. Growth mindset is not just about performance or achievement. And in fact, I would argue that if we are using growth mindset to only talk about someone's performance on a certain standard or to get a certain result, we are moving away from a way more powerful application of growth mindset, which is that there's always an ability to develop and incrementally grow our ability to have more control over how we pay attention to things, where our attention lands, our ability to improve our executive functioning skills. So like I mentioned in another episode, executive functioning skills, they are things that we are not born with. They only develop over time and they only develop in the presence of relationships with people and particularly adults because the way the human brain develops the last area to really fully develop is in the frontal areas where these executive functioning um, skills are located. And so again, executive functioning skills are things like impulse control, thinking of future consequences, weighing of pros and cons, moral reasoning, a lot of communication is, is, you know, related to that. So if we aren't in the presence of enough adults who have high levels of this executive functioning, this level of doing things on purpose, of being able to control an impulse in order to serve a long-term goal. If we're not in the presence of that growing up, it will impair our brain's ability to develop those executive functioning skills. Because again, that is not genetic. We are not born with that. We must be in these serve and return dynamic relationships where we are being presented with, we are being modeled executive functioning, this high level of that frontal area, the prefrontal cortex activity. So a few things about this. One is that we see in peer-reared societies, so um, whether this is monkeys, and we see this in, in other communities, where there is mainly only peer interactions. So there's very little adult supervision and very little adult modeling of this executive functioning, this level of control, that there are a lot of social problems, a lot of social, emotional, behavioral issues, and a lot of aggression and violence in those peer-reared societies. So what we know from that, it makes complete sense because these executive functioning skills are what allow us to have these levels of control within our relationships. So if we don't develop those. Obviously, we're going to be driven more by these unconscious drives, these more primitive impulses 
that will lead to these levels of aggression, very reflexive, unconscious, knee-jerk reactions with each other. And so, first of all, in the presence of a child, there needs to be very consistent level of adult support, but not just any adult, adults who have high levels of executive functioning. And that isn't a guarantee because if an adult in their life did not have models of executive functioning, either because they came from a very high peer ratio, so low adult ratio, peer reared, you know, community or environment, or the adults in their life did also, you know, a chain reaction from previous generations. If there was not a lot of executive functioning, and that can also remember come from having high, high stress levels. And this gets passed from generation to generation. These high stress, stress levels will keep the areas of the brain that we need for executive functioning basically inaccessible. So, even an adult is not that there's no guarantee that that adult is going to have this high level of doing things on purpose of having high level executive functioning because they may not have had the presence of adults to do that in their life. And again, it's not genetic, right? They need to have this. They need to have it modeled. Their Harvard Center for Developing Child has some excellent research on the importance of these adult relationships in order to build executive functioning skills. So, That's one thing to think about is that we need to have more adults modeling executive functioning in the presence of children. We also need more adults (laughs) demonstrating modeling executive functioning in the presence of other adults because many adults in the world do not have these high levels. And there is a high, you know, sensitive periods of growing up where this is really, really needed, but it doesn't mean that it's never possible for somebody because we do have this high level of plasticity. And the good news is that because these frontal areas are the last to come online, it means that they're very, very, very experience dependent. And that's good news because it means that it's less reliant on genes, which means that even an adult who doesn't have high levels of executive functioning, there is a better chance that they would be able to bring more of this online to have more of this develop even later in life. Slightly different than certain things like balance and motor coordination or even language where there are fairly sensitive areas. Again, nothing is impossible and our brain is more powerful than we think it is, but there are certain areas that there is much harder later in life to have the same, you know, level of flexibility for activating and rewiring. But these frontal areas, these executive functioning skills, they are some of the last to come online. So they are very experience dependent, which means that we can increase our exposure to executive functioning by being in the presence of people who have high levels of this. This might be one reason why people find it very comforting to go to something like a meditation retreat where there are people who have devoted their lives to this level of control, being able to very purposely hold their attention on something. And that attention muscle almost, if you want to call it that, that is a a really powerful part of the executive functioning, being able to hold our focus on a point of attention for a certain amount of time and not be distracted. That shows a high level of doing something on purpose, executive functioning and control. So if we go to something like, you know, a meditation center where there are multiple adults who have devoted their lives to that, there is a real sense, and I'm speaking from personal experience, there's a real sense of safety because that means that we 
in those environments, we are not surrounded by people who are going to be constantly unconsciously triggered, going off with no impulse control, no control over their knee-jerk reactions. The people that are coming to those retreats haven't necessarily trained in all that, but there's a high level of adults who have, and it creates a space where there's just this feeling of intention and control. So the more we can bring that into all of our lives, the better. And you can probably already start to see how school can really mess us up because we are not really designed. Our our optimal brain development is not designed to be constantly in the presence of peers, of same age peers and same, you know, brain phase development peers all the time. Um, we, we have moved away from that. Our you know, our ancestors didn't have quite, quite such a high level or, you know, for example, the hunter gatherer societies did not have such a high level of children, you know, uh, child to adult ratios. Those have changed drastically over time. If uh, Bruce Perry talks a lot about this, that we now have a one to four ratio. So one adult to four children ratio in almost all of our social settings. And that level is not allowing for enough of this executive functioning prefrontal cortex modeling to happen for it to get developed in these children. So one last thing to think about in terms of that also is that if we are asking somebody, whether we are a leader and we're asking our employees to do this, if we're a teacher, we're asking our students to do this, or if we're a parent, we're asking our children to have more control over their behaviors, we need to be very, very self-reflective about how much control we are modeling in our day-to-day, our moment-to-moment interactions. And I'll give you an example. If we're asking children to not be on their gadgets so much, but as an adult, if every time I hear a ding, every time I hear a notification, and let's say I have my Facebook notifications, which remember from last episode, none of that is life-threatening. We should never have Facebook notifications. That's not needed in life, but let's just say we do. And every time we immediately grab for our phone and we have no delay, there is no pause between when we decide to grab the phone and when we grab it. And there is actually a small delay in the brain between when we have the, we've made the decision to do something and when our body follows suit. Um, there, there can be a, de- uh, a delay that we develop by, again, uh, you know, developing these executive functioning skills. And part of that's going to come from, I'm going to talk about it in another episode, but becoming more aware of the sensation we feel in our body that happens in the moment where we feel the urge to grab the phone, because there's a physiological sensation that will happen. And when we become aware of that, that can allow us to create just a moment between when we feel the physiological, the the actual visceral feeling of the urge to grab the phone and when we grab it. And if we can bring some delays, some slowing down of that, that would be a model to someone in our presence that we are now slowing it down and we are choosing to grab the phone or that also gives us the chance to not grab it in that moment, to give it a minute, take a breath, and then grab it, or however we decide to do it in that moment. But just coming back to that, if we're asking people in our presence to have this level of doing things more on purpose, being more intentional, and we should be asking this of people because it is a standard that humanity can achieve. We just need to learn about it and be modeling it, understanding it more. If we ask this of people to, you know, choose something that's better for their future than 
an impulse they have or a tempting alternative, we need to be moment by moment in as many interactions as possible, modeling our ability to have more control over behavior. behavior. That would also include, for example, we're asking them to do this, but then Every time someone says something to me, to us, we jump very quickly into a hostile, defensive, or aggressive reaction. If we're doing that, we are not modeling prefrontal cortex, we're not, you know, prefrontal cortex activity or executive functioning. We are modeling defensive mobilization mode. We're not modeling a level of control. And so if we are not sometimes slowing down our ability to respond or choose one thing that's better for a future than than another. We can't really ask that of the people in our presence because if they're not able to do it, it means they have not been modeled that enough either. So what that would require is for if we want to be able to do that and be more of a model of that, it requires a lot of work on our part, very personal work. And it's more of a preventative daily thing that we do a ritual, a practice of some sort where we use our mind in a very intentional way. And so you're probably going to already guess I'm going to bring up mindfulness and meditation. And I almost would say that there are very few areas of social emotional intelligence, peak performance, all of that stuff that don't talk somewhat about this idea of mindfulness and meditation, because it is the most powerful mind technology that we have. So if we can bring in a practice of choosing how to hold our attention for a certain amount of time and holding our attention on our breath, sensations in our body, silence, even a noise. So if we need to have a steady, consistent noise, like a clock ticking, if we can hold our attention on that, and it takes a lot of practice, it is like a muscle. And many of us don't have very toned muscles in terms of this. So it will be in the span of 15 minutes, maybe only 10 seconds of being able to do it. But to consistently do it, and remember that growth mindset says everything comes in increments and it's microscopic progress. And also that there might be a very big level of discomfort that comes from trying to hold our attention for a certain amount of time because we're not used to it. We want to constantly change our physiological state. That's what we were always doing. Whether if we're bored, we want to be more stimulated. If we're overstimulated, we want to be bored. So it's not necessarily something that's going to feel normal, but it's something that will help us feel a sense of control and power over our interactions with others And this this will come over time. And if we're able to do that, we are more of a model of this executive functioning and level of control and doing things on purpose for the other people in our life. And that's really the only way that other people are going to learn this. We need more models of this. The other piece that this brings us, this ability to be able to control how we focus our attention also gives us a very deep sense of safety. And the reason for that is that many of us don't even feel safe to go into our own thoughts because we don't know where we're going to go with it. And we flit flit around. There's a lot of chatter. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of narratives that are not necessarily helpful narratives that have come from our previous, you know, conditioning and imprinting from when we were little. And so very few of us even want to go into that quiet space of just being alone with our 
our thoughts because we're we're scared of them. <laughs> and so having this level of being able to focus our attention whether it's on an image that makes us feel safe or just a very neutral sound or the sound of our breath or, you know, what I was saying, just a clock ticking or water running or something like that. If we can do that, it gives us a feeling of safety because it gives us a moment where we do get to just be with ourselves and not feel afraid to go there. And that's another thing that I think is missing in many people's lives. And I especially noticed that as a school counselor working with young people, that they don't want to be alone with their own thoughts. And it's part of why they numb themselves. They even will try and have physiological pain in order to not go into their own thoughts. They're so scared of their own thoughts. And so they numb themselves, or we all do numb ourselves with eating, watching television, going on the internet, and all of it is to part part of the reason is that it's very uncomfortable for us to just sit there <laughs> and be in the present moment and part of the reason for that is that we have very little control over where our attention will go and so it often will go right back into all the narratives that we have that are running instead of just the present moment sensations because we haven't practiced that a lot so the more we can do that, um, the better. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that on another episode because we're going to talk about something called interoception. So one other piece about attention, this level of doing things more on purpose and the game changer is being able to hold our attention on something for a certain amount of time. That's one of the the most important aspects of this executive functioning. And again, this relates to growth mindset because when we're asking people to have a certain belief or attitude, we need them to focus on possibly a certain narrative rather than another narrative. We need to for them to actually choose which belief that they're going to hold on to. And that requires a level of being able to hold your attention on the thoughts that are coming through your your mind or focus on something else when those thoughts are are kind of defeating you. So this idea of attention is so powerful. And the other thing we also have seen from the research is that attention is required. Our level to attend to something is required for structural changes to happen in the brain. So, for example, they did uh, an experiment with monkeys a, a long time ago, and it's called the flutter experiment. And these monkeys are trained to detect very, very subtle differences in vibration of these discs. And they found that the monkeys that, you know, were trained to do this had huge structural changes in the areas of the brain related to the index finger, which they were using to detect these differences. But then they found as they were, you know, modifying some of the experiments that, when they distracted the monkeys during this experiment, those structural changes didn't happen. The only way those changes happened was if the monkey was fully paying attention to their finger and the fluttering of the disc. So attending to something is what is needed for the structural change. So it's just a, it's a really, it's a game changer. It's uh, something that more of us need to do. And in our era of information technology, where there are so, so many things coming into our awareness nonstop, it's becoming harder to do this. And that's why we need to have moments where we are not on technology, where we are just in a present moment and we are using our mind in a more powerful way to hold our attention on something for a little while. And lastly, the third level of purpose that I want to talk about is 
The sense of, so I've mentioned this word before, self-transcendent purpose, which is the idea that we are here not just for ourselves, but for increasing the well-being of life around us and of others around us. And it also correlates with, so Ivan Pavlov also did some work on this. Many of us know Pavlov for his work on the conditioned reflex where he had dogs, you know, salivate at the sound of a bell. He won a Nobel Prize for that. But what's less known is that he also discovered something later in the 1920s where it's a concept that we now know as learned helplessness. And it came from these dogs that got stuck in their cages during a flood. And they saw that these dogs that were subjected to this, which he called inescapable shock, had profound differences in their behavior after the incident. And not all of them, the same changes across the board, but a a high number of them became very, very subdued. They laid, laid around on the floor motionless, barely paying attention to anything. They lost all sense of curiosity. And that was something he noticed was there was a contradiction in these impulses, the impulse to move when our lives are at stake to move in order to continue our own survival, but then an inhibitive force that came in that stopped this pulse within us, this pulse that's designed to keep us alive and to have a force that stops that it created, you know, he called like a disequilibrium. And it launched his last phase of research in the last phase of his life, which was the study of the reflex of purpose, which he considered the most important factor of life. So what him and Darwin also talked about was that this idea of purpose comes from both movement and emotions. And it's basically, to me, almost this idea that life wants us here. Life wants us to live, I guess would be another way to say it. Life wants us to live. We are driven to survive. We are driven to replicate. We are driven to continue. And I would argue to perpetuate the information that we contain. And we don't just contain information in our genes, as we've talked about, we contain information in our software, our experiences, and the combination of data from our experiences, that's information. And we are designed to continue our information to perpetuate it. And so part of our ability to perpetuate this information is we need to share it. It has to the experiences and combination of data that get built up within us need to be expressed outwards in order for that to cause a reaction in the world, which will then cause new combinations of data. And the process continues and our information continues. So what I would say is part of this is self-expression, our ability to express what is within us, the, the combination of data that comes from our experiences, which is totally unique to us. Nobody else will ever have gone through that before. Our expression of that into the outside world, into a world that where our expression creates some type of reaction in the outside world, that is part of our purpose. That's part of the drive within us to perpetuate our information. And so our ability for unique self-expression, every opportunity we have to express what the information from within to, to somebody else where it's heard and received, that gives us the feeling of fulfilling our purpose, uh, our purpose to perpetuate our information, to continue to thrive and survive. And so that idea of unique self-expression is also part 
of this idea of self-transcendent purpose. So not just self-expression, that's part of it, but also the uniqueness of it. Our unique value is also a really important part of this because that is what gives us almost one of our deepest senses of safety. And the reason for this is that, I think I mentioned in another episode, is that when we can figure out what our unique value is to the tribe, and by tribe I mean all of the entire human species and the entire planet, (laughs) that will be another episode. We're going to talk about tribalism. But our ability to understand that we have value to the human species, to the human tribe, the planetary tribe. When we know that it is so unique, it means that it's irreplaceable. It means that nobody else can duplicate it. And we can be guaranteed that if we figure out how our unique experiences, the very unique, never existed before combination of data that has occurred within us, and has built up all the different stuff, all the different information that's within us, if that gets expressed and we can be as unique about it as we can by really relying on how much of it is from our unique experiences, the more we use the uniqueness of our experience to express ourselves, the higher, two, so sorry, two factors. The more unique our expression is of the unique experiences we've had and being able to express that some way, that combined with if it has some type of level of service to someone, whether it's helping them appreciate beauty or it can be, you know, helping them achieve something or helping them feel a sense of ease, but some type of service that can have an effect on somebody outside of us that immediately creates a unique, irreplaceable form of value that we have in the tribe. And what that does is that creates or that minimizes the metaphorical danger we have of being rejected, of being useless and irreplaceable and disposable by the tribe. So the more we can figure out what that unique combination of experiences we have, how to express it to others, and how to express it in a way that has some type of value to them. That is our deepest sense of purpose and is one of our deepest forms of safety that we can create. And you can probably imagine that right now, school doesn't really allow for that to happen. And many of our jobs don't really allow for that to happen. So whatever position we are in, the more we can allow for the people that we work with or the students that we're teaching or whoever we're in the presence of to figure out what is so unique about them and their experiences and how can that be used to create value in the world, that will give them a sense of safety. And what's interesting is we see this in a lot of the research we have now. So what I mentioned in another episode was that self-transcendent purpose. So the paper from Yeager and Duckworth, there's also an Ed Week article, an Education Week article on students that understand a sense of purpose are just perform much better and they're much more innovative in their thinking. So they had students who created a prosthetic limb for a duck that they found that didn't have didn't have a foot and the level of genius that came out of that is extraordinary and that school uses that model for their their science program to help students figure out how do they make the world better how do they help life thrive through something that they create and we also see this in there's two two other 
psychologists that talk about this. Dr. Robert Brooks also talks about the sense of purpose. And his example is, so he does a lot of work on resilience. And he had a boy that he was skipping school. He was leaving school every single day. He was running outside and hiding in the bushes. And this went on for a very long time. And they tried so many different things. They tried behavior therapy and punish punishment, reward systems, all of those things. And finally he came in and he found out that the boy liked animals. And so he mentioned to the boy that he knew that he was really good with animals and there was a hamster in the kindergarten classroom and they needed somebody to monitor to make sure that hamster was doing okay every day that it had very specific times where they needed someone to check on the hamster. I don't think this was True, but he um, gave that as the story to the boy. He gave him a you know a tag that said monitor on it for the hamster, and that was the end of him running outside into the bushes. He had a sense of purpose, and that sense of purpose brought him to the school each day. I would say that we don't have a lot of that for many, many, many students where they are not particularly important in their own family. They're not seen as important necessarily that they have some kind of purpose to serve within their community, their family, or their classroom. And that is going to lead to that resignation and sense of helplessness. And another person that talks about this is Gordon Neufeld. I've mentioned him before. And his wording on it is the alpha instinct, that in each relationship, we fluctuate generally, or in ideal relationships, we fluctuate between being the alpha, the person that has something to offer the other person and teach them and lead them, and the beta, where we get to receive information from another person and be led and taught by them. And healthy relationships see a fluctuation of the two. And more, less balanced relationships, there's always one person who is the alpha and the other is the beta. And what we see in parent-child relationships, family relationships, classroom relationships, is that when people get to have a chance to be the alpha in those environments, there is that feeling of purpose that comes out. And what we see from the self-transcendent purpose research also is that when students are prompted to think about that, they have these higher levels of perseverance and regulation rather than given to tempting alternatives for different tasks. So they just stick to test review materials and things like that um, at higher levels. And one last thing about that is that this idea of purpose, which is that our existence is noticed and that it creates change in our environment. I just want to give you one last example about that, which is it's called the still face experiment. And what they did with this was that the the mother and the infant were facing each other and what they had the mother do. So this this actually ties in both with this idea of we have a purpose in the sense that our existence is noticed and it creates change and the social engagement system. We actually see the cascade of the different levels of what I talked about in the last episode of the first level, which is our social engagement system, the myelinated vagus nerve using our facial gestures and vocalization to create a reaction in somebody else, which then if that doesn't work, we immediately go into our mobilization defensive mode And if that doesn't work, we go into our folding over, resigned, kind of freeze or shutdown mode, which is more of the unmyelinated vagus nerve in the parasympathetic system. So with the still face experiment, we see all of this happen within a span of a couple minutes. The mother is facing her child. 
And they have the, they give the instruction to the mother to always keep her face neutral, to have a still face and never react or respond to her baby in any way. So they face each other. And what happens in the beginning is the baby starts to laugh and, and do silly faces and, and just try and get some kind of reaction. And they're making noises and facial gestures, but she remains still face. The baby just eventually starts to get very fidgety and angry and anxious and starts to cry or yell and just shakes and really wants to get out of there and wiggles. And she still doesn't react, still face. And what they see after a little while, the baby then completely gives up. It stops making eye contact with her, looks away, slumps over, and then Luckily, she immediately comes in because she needs to repair the relationship at that point. So what we see is this idea that we need to know that our existence is being noticed and that it matters. And one way to do that is by this social engagement system that people are responding to what we are putting out there. So that's one level of that. And then I, you know, in this episode, we're talking about how later in life we begin to really express ourselves in a unique way. So that's the idea of purpose and how we can bring that into, into our lives. So what we looked at in this episode was that, first of all, we assign too much intention, willfulness to people's behavior. We believe that people are doing more things on purpose than they actually are. And when we believe that, it tends to bring a level of defensiveness into our reactions to them. So we need to be more aware of how many unconscious triggers most of us are behaving from and reacting from, and that most of the time when people are in a more defensive kind of mode, there's a very high chance they're not doing that on purpose because of the the fact that they're in a mobilization mode. It means that the areas of the brain involved in doing things on purpose and having control aren't even there, aren't even accessible. Number two, that we haven't really even been taught how to have more control over behaviors. It's not something that's talked about a lot in school or in society, but we're learning more about that. And we need to have more presence of people that are in control of more of their thinking, of where they hold their attention, are, have higher levels of executive functioning, are able to think about future consequences, are able to control some of their impulses, to slow down their reactions, slow down their response and take a breath before they do something. We need more of that in everyone's lives. So we need more adults with these high executive functioning skills in the presence of children. But remember again that just because we're an adult doesn't mean we've developed those skills because if we weren't in the presence of that growing up or if there was a high level of stress and anxiety in our environments, which also lowers that executive functioning, then we have not developed it either. So no matter what situation or organization or platform or environment we're in, if we would like for the people in our environments to have more control over the behaviors and do more things on purpose and think about long-term consequences, we must be the model of that in our moment-to-moment interactions with them. A level of control and being able to slow things down and regulate our behaviors and our physiological state, we need to be the model of that. Otherwise, it will not develop in the people around us. And lastly, the idea of this instinct of purpose, that we are driven to survive and we're driven to stay alive and we're driven to perpetuate our information. And so any opportunity we have to 
uniquely express ourselves, to find some way that our unique combination of experiences and background and all the data that we've accumulated over time, any way we can have that be uniquely expressed and received by people, and for that to also have some type of value for the people around us. That creates a high level of safety, that the more we can bring that to en- into any kind of learning environment, social environment, we will increase the level of safety, which is allows people to access the areas of their brain that they need for learning and creativity. So I hope all of that was helpful. Actually, there I have a growth mindset goal setting booklet. If you subscribe to my website, uh, stephaniefayfrank.com, you'll immediately get that as a PDF download. And it actually talks about the four steps, the understanding neuroplasticity, celebrating mistakes or reframing mistakes, highlighting micro-progress, and it even has a goal-setting page and diagram for this idea of self-transcendent purpose. So if you want to get that, go to my website and subscribe. And also, I would love if you can leave a review for me on iTunes and subscribe to iTunes. That would really help me out also. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode. For free resources and materials, including the Growth Mindset Goal Setting Booklet, head to my website at stephaniefayfrank.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and leave a review. If you do, you'll be entered for a chance to win a scholarship to one of my training programs or online course.